0: Your
1: butt. <laughs> <laughs> Boop. Welcome to episode 67 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight I am joined by my co-host, Civil War nerd extraordinaire and IPA sommelier, Darren Weeks, also Ooh. known as Darren from the internet. I am his crazy Canadian co-host and former Labatt blue beer drinker, Mary.
0: IPA what? Sommelier. A smelly what? <laughs>
1: you call me? I called you a sommelier. Do you know what a sommelier is? Apparently
0: not. It's something covered with peanut butter, right? Yeah, it is.
1: No, okay. totally. You ever heard of a wine sommelier? I'm probably mispronouncing so, it how completely. You doing,
0: how you doing, <laughs> Mary? What's going on? How's your night? I basically said you were an IPA. Every time Mary butches the intro, an angel gets its wings. It so how are you? What's going on?
1: I'm good. Or a kitten dies.
0: I'm not sure which. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that that intro was very smellier, as they say. So how goes the night? What's going on with you? How's your mood? It's pretty good, how yours? Oh, it's great. Everybody knows you can't, you know, you put the O O in moody. So, you know, I guess i always going to ask that Bucky. question, right? Okay. Well, here goes the E. So outstanding. Outstanding. So <laughs> we managed to get tonight, a minute man?
1: 18 in before we got the E.
0: That's pretty good. That sets an all-time all-time record. Yep. So what is on tap tonight? What are we talking about? We are talking about Battle of Nashville. So
1: we have done an episode about Franklin, which we did last year, and we recently did an episode about Battle of Spring Hill. We are wrapping up our discussion of the Franklin-Nashville campaign by talking about this final battle in it, and it's also really the beginning of the end for the Army of Tennessee.
0: Yep, they all come unraveling out, but... Yep. Before we get started, we have a tradition here at the old Breakfast Club, Mayor. We do, and it's called what's dr- Mary drinking. So, what's the you know, what's the, what's on tap tonight?
1: <laughs> Mary is drinking gorgeous Giant Gets His Way, which is a si- session IPA by Refined Fool Brewing Company, which is a brewing company in Sarnia, Ontario. And I am drinking it out of my George, the Rock of Chickamauga Thomas mug. And how about okay. you? Okay. Well, I how about you, Darren tonight? from the
0: internet? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Darren from the internet. Anyway, <laughs> I thought it so was Darren drink- from the <laughs> Darren, Okay, I am drinking it's called Mason's hipster apocalypse double IPA. Very nice. And that's I'm drinking that because that's what they had at the old liquor store. And I'm drinking from my William T. Sherman die mad mug, just because sometimes you just want to die mad. That's about pretty much what it is, I guess, right? I don't know. It's, it's the first month. I, I didn't put a lot of thought into this one, Mary. It was there. But I, I emptied the dishwasher, and that's the one I grabbed. <laughs> so judge me as you will. So that's what I got. All right. So well, we
1: Sherman go. is kind of involved in this. He's doing his march to the sea at the time the Battle of Nashville happens.
0: He's going, to, he's going to send he's going to send some troops over to Nashville. It's that this, this the from yeah. his army of the Tennessee. So we'll talk about that as this goes on. So anyway, so what do you want? Let's get started talking about Old Nashville. What do you think? We'll take it back a little bit. We've talked we've been in Tennessee for a while. Had our feet up, eating that Nashville hot chicken, taking you know Broadway, all the all the sights and in, in Tennessee for the last couple of weeks with this. So we can talk about the beginning of it. So yeah. what you mentioned earlier, it is the end of the Tennessee campaign in the Army of John Bell Hood, the Army of Tennessee. See, is coming off that absolute disaster at the Battle of Franklin on November 30th, 1864, which is one of if not the greatest defeats of the Confederacy in the American Civil War.
1: It is, yeah. And just to let her, like, bring her listeners kind of up to speed on Nashville, it has been in Union hands since February of 1862 after uh, Fort Donelson and Fort Henry fell. The defensive works around Nashville were constructed by the Union at this time. It had been known as the Athens of the South. So it's a commercial, industrial, and kind of social center of the time for the South. And ever since it fell, the Confederates have been trying very, very hard to get it back for obvious reasons. Nashville is one of the most heavily fortified cities in North America. And By 1864, at the time of the battle, the defensive works are seven miles long, and they are in a semicircle around the south and west sides of the city. And there's a few forts there, including Fort Negley. After the Union troops arrive there on December the 1st, so after Battle of Franklin, they're going to extend the line to the west. And the Cumberland River, which is there, forms a natural defensive barrier on the north and east side of the city, and it is well defended. And as I said, the Confederacy, they keep trying to take the city throughout the Civil War. That's what Stones River is about, too, right? They're trying to get down that Nashville Road, and Stones River. When we recorded that episode last year, we said how the you know the tide of the war could have turned had they managed to get down that Nashville Road and retake Nashville. Like it is a very so, important city for them to hold on to.
0: It is a lot. There's a railroad uh, railroad tracks, there's supplies. But at this time, you know, this time just stuff coming off of Franklin, this is really the true dark days of the Confederacy in the West. Yeah. This is this is the nader the point. You know, even with that, I mean, Hood's army is still one of the few moving armies going. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert Lee is pinned down around Petersburg, and his his army's still going. But again, this was this was when the South felt that for the most part, all was lost, and they needed that Hail Mary, you know, to change that course of the war at this point. Everything was going bad. So, you know, we're, we're not going to go into detail about John Bell Hood again, the whole history with him. You know, needless to say, he's installed as commander of the Army of Tennessee in Atlanta, replacing Joseph Johnson. We've talked about this a million times now. Davis was hoping that that aggressive Hood was going to help defeat Sherman in Atlanta. We talked about not too long ago, when we talked about the uh, about uh, Spring Hill, Hood was new to command. A commander of the Corps level, he basically did what Davis wanted. He was kind of, he, he he was, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Hood was close with Davis. As a matter of fact, he was writing letters to him as far back as 1862, talking about leadership and all kinds of things. He's pining for a position. And Davis is, you know, wants to know what's going on with Bragg's army. Bragg is not as aggressive as Robert Lee is in the East, so there's a definitely something going on. Mm-hmm. So Hood's going to get sent west to become a corps commander. For the most part, he was sent there because there was no no positions available in the east form right mm. there was there wasn't much to do so if he wants to be a core commander for the most part he's gonna go west young man right that's what's gonna have to yeah. happen so after franklin hood's army you know they took those gigantic losses including the loss of those six generals we've talked about when they lost all that experience that division level you know the loss of guys like patrick clayburn if you've heard of him <laughs> um and and at the brigade level you losing guys like states right Schist and all straw and Hiram Granberry mm-hmm. and, and John C. Adams—they they lose a bunch of guys. So these losses are going to trickle all the way down to the regimental level. You know, Alexander Stewart's corps and Benjamin Cheatham's corps—they they all took those huge cap, those huge casualties at Franklin. You know, to the point where some regiments were—you know—they were being commanded by captains of companies at yeah. this point. That's how far it was. It, it was what a mess it was. But on the Union side, you know, they took their beat down as well. Mm-hmm. You know. The 23rd Corps, you know, he's under John Schofield. And David Stalin's 4th Corps, they got bruised as well at Franklin. So, you know, George Wagner's division we talked about, they took those heavy losses and took the brunt of that Hood's advance, especially um, – you know, the hero of Franklin Emerson Opdyke, you know, <laughs> you know he, he's, he's going to take those hits. He, you know, he helped plug that gap at Carter house. Yeah. So they all both sides, I mean, the, the, you know, the reputation is that hood's army got beaten down, but they kind of both did. So yeah, December 1st, 1864, this is the day after the Battle of Franklin. John Bell had found himself in a really crappy position. So he's like, well, his army is really beaten, right? He can't retreat. He has no choice but no. to continue to Nashville. So yep. he has to try to defeat George Thomas, who's in Nashville, because he's the real last hope. You know, he's like, you know, it's Star he's Wars. Obi-Wan. Yeah, he, yeah, he's Obi-Wan. Yeah, he, you're our only
1: hope, right? He's Obi-Wan because so, his strategy is to you know, get Nashville back and then from there move into Kentucky to get provisions and volunteers, which we saw this before with Richmond, right? With Braxton Bragg wanting to get provisions and volunteers. And we saw how that worked out in yeah. the early days
0: of the Civil War. I mm-hmm. mean, depending on what John Bell Hood's plans were, it depends on who you ask. We'll yeah. talk about that going forward. Hood was probably just, looking to stay in Tennessee and cause problems. I mean, I'm not sure, but we'll we'll talk about that. Well, I think it's one of
1: those things where it's like, it's it's this last-ditch effort. So it wouldn't be shocking if, you know, it's like, oh, I got Nashville back. Okay, I'm going to go to Kentucky. And certainly... You know, the War Department and Lincoln in Washington are worrying about that, too. Like, that's on General yeah, Grant's yeah. mind is this kind of, And General Grant even said something like I wouldn't blame him if he took uh, Nashville back and then he goes into like Ohio or whatever. Right. Like, it's something that's definitely on their minds. Well, and Hood probably there's, knows there's it, a, too.
0: There's, there's a lot of stuff with that. But I mean, hurt you know, Hood was really feeling the burden, you know, because, you know, if he retreated, it meant the end of his career. He yeah. was done. And he, and yeah. he knew that. And it was probably the end of the Confederacy in the Western Theater as well. So he had no choice but Mm -hmm. to advance. And sometimes people rip John Bell Hood for going to Nashville. And admittedly, I've been hard on Hood too, Mary. I'm not going to lie to you, I have. But in this situation, he had no choice. He had to, right? Yeah. So and some people think him going to Nashville is foolish. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So he was, you know, Hood was aggressive. Okay, he was. But one thing he wasn't, he wasn't stupid. He was not stupid. He knew the state of his army. He knew all those losses at Franklin. And he knew that he had to change his philosophy just a little bit. So his, you know, he, what he kind of wants to do, his plan is to get to Nashville. He wants to set up breastworks. And, and he wants to play defense, right? Mm-hmm. He wants to provoke George Thomas into leaving that army. Now, you mentioned Nashville defo- has been under Union control since February of 62. Yeah. It's been fortified with those seven miles of defenses, okay? He knows with the shape of his army, he ain't getting in there. It just ain't going to happen, right? He knows what he has to do is he needs to draw Thomas out of that defenses into an open field, fight him, and then try to counterattack and hopefully finish him off. Now, his plan, I mean, it was a one to a million. It it just just was. But the problem with Hood, though, is he's banking on Thomas, who is a—I'm not going to sit there and say he's aggressive because he ain't right he just he just isn't he's methodical
1: i would label him as methodical someone lay him as like grant labeled him as slow i would say he's methodical and likes to think things through
0: i think he tends to think things a little too much and i think the problem with him was if you had a really aggressive guy if you had i'm not sure who you'd have in there but if you had someone like a union version of of hood in there yes okay it would make sense so like if you had hancock in there Okay, if you have Hancock in there, okay. No, if you, that's a good, that's a good thing. But he's banking on Thomas to make that really aggressive, over aggressive mistake to leave those those fortifications of, of that city, and this wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So Thomas, the thing about him, you know, he was experienced, and he wouldn't make such a mistake with that. But he also, even if he wasn't, even if he was aggressive, his experience isn't going to let him. Isn't going to do that. Now, no. We've talked about George Thomas a million times on this podcast. He's that Virginian who pissed off his family because he stayed loyal to the union yep. and you, and, and instead of fighting the Confederacy, but he's just, you know, he's just not an aggressive guy Mm-mm. and, you know, deliberate, I think it was a phrase you use is a really a good one. Yeah. You know, he's accused of having the ultimate slows <laughs> by the guys in Washington at this point, they'd seen slow, right? Oh
1: yeah. Well, that's what Lincoln was, was worried about. He was thinking, shit, we got another McClellan on our hands here. And you know, like, thomas is there in nashville receiving telegrams from grant and lincoln urging him to strike hood's Hood's forces and thomas is like nope and he delays for up to two weeks and he lists the reasons as being again we go back to the weather there's freezing temperatures there's an ice storm that lasts for a few days he's got limited cavalry support because wilson at the time is not well like the horses are tired and fatigued again it sounds a lot like mcclellan but, like, you need that good cavalry support because you have to protect your flanks with your cavalry. And Grant and Lincoln are not
0: happy about this. And we're going to get to that later in the episode. Yeah, I mean, cavalry, we'll talk about that. But I mean, really, I mean, to defend Thomas here, I, I like Thomas. Thomas is good, you know. Thomas good is awesome looking guy, right? So, you know, the first, there's really, his army's kind of all over the place as well. First, he's got yep. Schofield, right? who is arriving from Franklin, and he's pretty beaten up as well. They're going to limp into Nashville for the most part, right? Second, he's waiting for the arrival of A.J. Smith. Now, this is a detachment that's going to come from Sherman, the Army of the Tennessee. Mm -hmm. They're on their way. They're coming, okay? The third thing is he's got a guy named James Stedman's provisional um, detachment from the district of what's called the Etowah, okay? Now, most of these troops are green as the grass. They are little or no combat. Yep. There's two brigades of the U.S. Colored Troops we're going to talk about later on, so his army is you know he blows that conch shell to bring that army <laughs> together right. He doesn't know what he's getting. He's what he's getting. He's getting fifty-five thousand guys, but he he hasn't had a chance to command them for the most part. They're right? mismatched. They're so-
1: like we we've always said that the Western Theater is kind of like the island of misfit toys. This is like the perfect example of that. Like this this army is like misfit toys it's mismatched of like you know you got some of cumberland you got some of army of the tennessee you got some of army of the ohio you got etowah like you've got this whole group that has never worked together you know there's that to factor into it as well and they're all converging here on
0: nashville well i mean the thing is is he he he's bringing this army together. He doesn't know what to expect. The other issue that you kind of alluded to that was holding Thomas back is that weather, right? Mm -hmm. When hood arrives near Nashville, when hood gets up there, the weather is frigging disastrous. It's snowy and icy. The temperatures are in the single digits and it lasted for almost an entire week. And it's impossible to move large numbers of troops and supplies in that weather. That's simply impossible. George Thomas is going to tell, you know, is going to tell, um, Thomas Wood, if this snow keeps up, it won't come down. He didn't say that. I, I made that up. He didn't say that. But, but, but for the most part, that's the weather he's going to be dealing with. So also, John Schofield, he's got, you know, we talk a lot about the Confederates yapping behind everybody's back. John Schofield is bad. Now, we talk a lot about him at Spring Hill and Franklin he's friendly with us grant and mm-hmm. he's also not a huge fan of thomas no so he's writing letters behind thomas's back to grant saying hey not for nothing but guess who should be in charge of the army of the cumberland and who has two thumbs this guy <laughs> right so he he's he's doing that as well so going back to the you know to the confederacy hood is in a tough spot here right mm-hmm. he for a million reasons we've already talked about but also besides that he's in the tough spot logistically so he is in between two Union armies at this point. Yeah, thirty-five miles away to the southeast is a town called Murfreesboro. Perhaps you've heard of it. There was a battle there called Stones River a couple yeah. years before. We talked about that. You probably weren't even paying attention. <gasps> but in but in Murfreesboro hmm. is a Union force of eight thousand guys under Lovell Rousseau, right? Hmm. And this made nervous uh, Hood nervous because Rousseau's men were right in his Savannah right around the corner <laughs> and, and their presence, you know, also at the same time was kind of a yin and the yang thing. Yeah. It made him nervous, but it also gave him an opportunity. He knew that he had to provoke Thomas to come out of the city. Exactly. So he thought, well, maybe just, maybe if I send troops to Murphy's bro, it might be just enough to get Thomas to come out and try to stop them. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what he's thinking. So, On the 7th of December, 1864, John Bull Hood is going to send old friend William Batemary, his 1,500 men, as well as Nathan Bedford Forrest's 6,000 men cavalry, to advance towards Murfreesboro. And he's hoping this is going to wake Thomas up out of his slumber and get him to do something in his front. And that's kind of how, how it goes.
1: Yeah, and this is where you have the third battle of Murfreesboro, which doesn't actually get talked a lot about in this campaign, but it is like... It's a huge thing when you think about, you know, what the consequences are of it. So um, Union Gev- General Lavelle Rousseau, as you said, is commanding all the forces at Murfreesboro. And you know who's here is none other than Milroy from uh, Winchester fame. We've talked stopped about running. him. Yeah. We've talked don't about you him stop. before.
0: Finally you, stopped
1: running. Do you, don't you think he has the most amazing hair in the Civil War or something like it that? There's none better. There is none no, better. No, I can name one guy. Oliver Rousseau. You know I, what? Rest my case.
0: <laughs> <Anyway>. episode ruined <gasps>
1: anyway so milroy is the one that's going to be fighting the confederates and the confederates end up breaking and Forrest, at this moment he seizes the flag and he's trying to rally them back and his men the men are like nope fuck that we're not doing this um and Forrest and his men end up camping for the night outside um, Murfreesboro, and this doesn't really do much. This kind of it's more like a raid than a battle. Like Forrest does um, destroy some of the railroads and the blockhouses and some homes, and he disrupts Union operations briefly in the area, but it does not draw Thomas out the way that Hood thinks it's going to. So Thomas is probably like, oh no,
0: no, he it it doesn't. It's it's it, I don't want to say it's a waste of time. You know, uh, but it it doesn't work. It doesn't get the desired effect. Now, while while this is all going on, right, Hood's presence in Tennessee, you you mentioned this a bit ago, is starting to freak out the leadership in Washington, right? And they had very unrealistic views of what Hood was capable of doing. But Lincoln and Grant, for the most part, felt that if Hood was able to defeat Thomas, he could move into Kentucky and potentially get into Ohio. Uh, before crossing through west virginia and reuniting with lee in virginia just like what you said yeah now uh, it's funny because you know what the one guy who was totally cool with this whole concept was william sherman mary yeah. right and because he figured if as long as hood's away he ain't chasing me down in georgia and he has that quote he goes if, he, if you know if he was in tennessee um you know, he he was he was no threat to his army in Georgia. If that's where he was, and Sherman said, if Hood wants to go to Ohio, I will give him rations. Right. So he's like, okay, you go away. That's fine. Yeah. But the reality is, Lincoln and Grant's fear was was probably not because likely all that Hood intended to disrupt. You know, I think all Hood really wanted to was disrupt Tennessee for the most mm-hmm. part. I think it was misplaced fear by Lincoln and Grant at this point. Um, well, it's kind of like to... when
1: people thought that when Lee invaded um, Pennsylvania, that he was going to go after D.C. and he was going to go after, you know, Philadelphia and all that, right? That he was going to hit those cities. And Lee's really just up there on a big shopping trip, as we talked I mean, about uh, before.
0: Hood is basically looking to raid the Food King. That's what he's looking to do. He's <laughs> okay. just looking to cause issues, you know. And the reason why is because he doesn't have the army and the strength and the supplies to do it anymore. He just doesn't know, you know, his, his army was, was literally taken on, taking on water as he was sailing along. Now hood also does know that, you know, he's putting pressure on Lincoln by simply just being there. Oh, yeah. And, and, but he also knows he's got a formidable foe in front of him in Thomas that's entrenched in the city of Nashville. So, the reality is it, he was limited to what he could do, but he knew the psychological game was being played. But regardless, Grant and Lincoln were in the dark to what was happening in Nashville because they weren't hearing what was going on. Well, and they're also in the and dark
1: it, about Sherman, too. So they're probably really on edge about that. But, you know, they kinda of, like Lincoln says about what's happening in Nashville, he says, this seems like the McClellan and Rosecrans strategy is to do nothing and let the rebels raid the country. And that's kind of an unfair statement, especially when it comes to Rosecrans
0: and, you know, well, you know, again, it's it's the sum of all fears for Lincoln. And Grant for that matter, too. You know, the reality, I mean, Tom, their fear that, you know, to to quote you just said, they're afraid that Thomas is going to be McClellan. They're going to spend the entire winter eating Nashville chicken, hanging on a Broadway and just chilling going to the DQ, not, not doing anything with no intention of attacking Hood, regardless. Now, Grant, he's also concerned about this yeah. prospect of Hood going north as well, because don't forget, he's in Virginia and he doesn't want to deal with Hood in his front either. But he also says, if I after the war, if I'd been Hood, I'd have gone to Louisville and north I'd have, until I got to Chicago. Yeah. So I'm not sure what he's thinking with that, but I think he's trying to realize that there might be an opportunity if he wanted to do that. Yeah. But again, so Grant and Lincoln are going to kind of overreact here. Grant is going to send John Blackjack Logan yeah. uh, to Nashville. And the whole plan is if Logan gets to Nashville and Thomas is still sitting on his rock of Chickamauga, he's going to be fired. And yeah. Logan's going to take control. Now, Grant is also not sure what the hell Tom is, what's, what's going to go on with Thomas yeah. and, and uh, Blackjack as well. So he's thinking, shit, you know what? Nashville's pretty cool in December. I think I might go there as well. So he's going to make a plan that I'm going to grant. I mean, I'm going to go there as well and see what the situation is. Um, Thomas was something. Sherman didn't trust him, whether it be the Virginian thing, whether it be the history of of things like Kennesaw, who knows, whatever it was. He didn't trust him, and so there was a lot of ambiguity into what they were going to get from George Thomas. I think it was a lot and of that...
1: the Virginian thing. It was just a lot of mistrust, which is really unfair. Thomas had proved himself by this point, I think.
0: No, he was, yeah. but but fortunately for Thomas, though, he did decide to finally move in before either of them got there to Nashville, and so he did save his job just by finally doing what he was supposed to do. Yeah. It. By the time this Battle of Nashville, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, is over, Logan was already in Louisville. He was right yeah. around the corner, right? And Grant was sitting at the Willard Hotel firing up his stogie in the lobby, <laughs> probably. And he's preparing <laughs> to jump on the train to Nashville, yeah. too. And then they both end up staying at those places because they do get word that Thomas had finally come out. But so going back to Nashville, you know, just the snow is falling, the sleet, the cold continues. Both armies are really just gonna sit and stare at each other, right? Stare. Until the they're just going to stare at each other while those <laughs> conditions conditions continued to get worse now nashville nashville's you know we mentioned at the beginning of this nationalism was a strategic town mm-hmm. unlike gettysburg or sharpsburg for example this city has strategic value right it had been under union control since february 62 and don carlos buell captured the city it was the first confederate state capital to fall um and 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 so it was fortified, you know, with a lot of defenses, but it had those warehouses, had the river, it had the trains, it had a lot. So it was a strategic point. So at this point, the question was, well, who's going to blink first here? Is it going to be Thomas or is Hood finally going to yeah. do something mm-hmm. to push the end the stalemate? Because they literally just stare at each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, and so it's finally on December the 15th that Thomas is going to launch a, de- a demonstration on the Confederate Right across the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. And as we said, this is like a very pieced together army that has never fought together. Um, And this is meant to distract Hood and possibly have him send men over that way because the main assault is going to be on a cluster of Confederate redoubts on the Confederate left. Hmm.
0: Right. But just remember, before we get there, we got to talk about the boats, though.
1: Oh, yes, we okay? do. The Navy is involved so, in this.
0: So, you know, we're going to talk about that. Everyone forgets the Navy. It's it's funny. It's like the, the Navy is the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> they are. So, you know, so it's really when, when Hood is looking to attack Nashville, his real focus first is the railroads. That's what his primary yeah. goal is. He wants to play defense, like we said. But attacking the railroads is in, is is what he wants to do along that river. So what he's going to do is going to set up two batteries on the Cumberland River to fire at Union steamers on the on the river. Now, December second, Hood's batteries are going to capture a pair of Union supply ships that carried horses and mules for the most part, as well as other supplies that Thomas needed. So at the beginning of the Battle of Nashville, Nashville really involved the Navy, which we said before, no one ever really thinks about. Yeah. December 3rd, the Navy responds finally under the command of uh, a guy named Leroy Jenkins, bitch. Just Leroy, <laughs> bitch, but Throw it in there. And he's going to use four ships to recapture those two lost supply ships that carried the mules and the horses. Bitch is going to use our old friend, the Carondelet. Remember yes, that from back in the day? Right? Yep. As well as the Fair Play. in... And they're going to be joined, well, since it's from the holidays, they're going to be joined by a boat called the Moose and the Reindeer. So they're going to make <laughs> sure they get involved, too. So it is Christmas time. Oh, the Mary, Moose, so how Canadian. Too. And the Reindeer. So anyway, December 4th, right around midnight, the Carondelet is going to open fire on those two rebel batteries that are on both sides of the river, as well as some dismounted cavalry, mm-hmm. right? So about 3 o'clock in the morning, right around Call Me Navy time, <laughs> they, had, they, had reca- they had recaptured those two union supply ships those confederates had 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 yeah now there was the confederates were literally unloading the supplies at this time the horse and the mules had already been unloaded were long gone at this point now belong to the confederacy but more importantly those union ships did take out those rebel batteries so thomas began to realize that you know he he he, now is the time to attack he he has his opportunity now so he formulates that game plan so you know, you had mentioned a second ago, his plan was to was to fan a diversionary attack on that Confederate right who was entrenched, hoping was going to draw troops yep. from the rebel left, which was his primary intentional goal. His real attack was in the Confederate left. But just like so many battles we see, you want to feign one side, rope a dope and hit him with the other. So yep. on that Union left, uh, the side that would create that diversion it was placed troops of James Stedman's Department of the Etowah. Now, these troops we mentioned before were as green as Mary's face on a Saturday morning, okay? They were, they were that green. And they were also had never seen battle before, literally and figuratively. They had it. Now, also under Stedman's control would be those two brigades, of those U.S. colored troops, the U.S.C.T. we're yeah. going to talk about. Now, the primary attack we mentioned was on the Confederate left would be led by John Schofield's 23rd Corps, and and they would basically try to drive in Hood's left flank. So, yeah. First thing Thomas is going to do. This is a, this is heading into the battle. He's going to send his cavalry and James Wilson, you mentioned him, yep, to deal with that rebel cavalry on that rebel left hand side and drive them away. Um, who was under command of James Chalmers? Why? Because Forrest didn't get back from Murphy's. No. Bro. And that's a big deal. With this, yeah. is he is he's doing the old Jeb Stewart thing? Who the hell knows what he's doing? Yeah. But he's gone. Where right? in the
1: world is Nathan Bedford Forrest?
0: So, so Forrest is running around. Maybe he's posing for his gold statue in Nashville. We don't know where he is, but he's not. But <laughs> he's not there at sort of the time of the battle. Statue. Right? That is. Oh my God. So Stedman, okay, he's a Pennsylvanian Barry, born in eighteen seventeen, had the unfortunate experience of moving to Ohio in eighteen thirty five, um, ended up fighting with Sam Houston in the Texas War of Independence. Mm-hmm. He's gonna end up getting involved in politics and was twice elected to the Ohio General Assembly before end up heading to California for the 1849 gold rush. Guess what happens? He finds no bling. Nothing, right? Oh, he's not lucky like Uncle Blingy was. He's not going to. So he's gonna return in 1850. Ten years later, he is part of the Ohio delegation to the Democratic National Convention. Instead, man is a huge Uh, supporter of Stephen A. Douglas. He's a Democrat. He's a capital D Democrat, Stephen, okay? Now, when the Civil War breaks out, Stephen's going to join that Union cause and become the colonel of the 14th Ohio, where he's, for the most part, he's going to fight in the West. He's going to be at the Battle of Philippi in in West Virginia. Um, His 14th is going to fight at uh, Mill Springs with Thomas, okay? He'll fight at the Siege of Corinth. He's also going to be end up being a Brigadier General, finally, uh, in that Army of the Ohio. Now, if you remember, he's the one who helped General Rousseau at Perryville, Mary, he is. by reinforcing he is. his troops. Yep. Um, and he got those major props by Don Carlos Buell. And as I mentioned before, he is a Democrat. And the irony um, of commanding black troops is not missed on him, by the way. No. He says, and I quote Mary I wonder what my Democratic friends would think of me if they knew I was fighting with N word troops that's the exact quote he said okay so he was no he was no abolitionist okay now the primary first day of the battle of nashville starts on december uh, 15th yep the night before december 14th around 9 p.m okay the colonel of the first colored brigade a guy named colonel thomas jefferson morgan mary comes to stedman's headquarters and just like robert goldshaw okay in glory he requests his first colored Brick brigade to to lead the attack. Just like in the movie. Exactly the same deal. Okay. Now, Morgan um, gets the okay from Stedman and he's going to scout their own positions. He said the distant campfires look like fireflies. That was a quote he said, right? And what he didn't see though was the four batteries and the cannon that were on the spur where he was going to advance to. And that's going to come back and haunt him later. So on December 15th at four o'clock in the morning, these soldiers of the USCT where each issued a hundred rounds and two days rations. Okay. And the ground was foggy. It was early in the morning. So they didn't really get started till eight o'clock in the morning. This first USCT brigade under Morgan, he's got three regiments. Okay. He's got the 14th under Henry Corbin, which is going to be in the lead. The 17th under William Shaffer, and the 44th commanded by major Lewis joy. Okay. So he's got three regiments. He's going to lead with now. Remember, this attack is a diversion. Yeah. This isn't the real attack. Okay. They're going to be supported by a traditional brigade under a guy named Charles Grosmer, okay, mm-hmm. who commanded the third brigade under Charles Cruft, his provisional division, guys from Ohio and Indiana for the most part. Now, it's important to remember again, this is a diversionary attack. This is not this is this is the appetizer. This is not the meat potatoes of this yeah. battle, okay? But someone apparently didn't tell Stedman's guys this. Okay, so they didn't really care. They, no. they wanted to go in, right? The 14th USCT is going to begin that march through an orchard and immediately is going to come under fire from artillery and infantry. They're going to get hit pretty hard. Once that 14th was engaged, that 17th is going to move in. And as soon as they cross that railroad line with at the National and Chattanooga Railroad, yeah. they're going to come under heavy, heavy fire. A Georgia soldier who saw this whole thing said, we had the Negroes in a trap Incomplete demoralization followed. Many jumped into the railroad cut and were killed or captured. Now, what's interesting about this, I mentioned before, Charles Grosvenor, he's supposed to support them, right? Yep. He disappears faster than that last IPA in your fridge. (laughs) He's gone, okay? So according to William Shafter, or that commander of the 17th we talked about, he says of uh, Grosvenor's men, they behaved in the most cowardly and disgraceful manner. They gone. That's where they went. Yeah. So at this point, the Federals are all going to fall back to that, that Murfreesboro Pike.
1: Yeah. So they fall back there. And then, um, sorry, let me get back here to my notes. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find my place
0: here. Well, let me, let me start real quick about, about Thomas Morgan real yeah, quick yeah. while you're, while you're, yep. while you're ruminating. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Thomas Morgan, Thomas Morgan is a colonel of the first USCT. Okay. There's only there's two brigades. There's the first and there's the second um and his brigade is going to attack on december 15th uh, in, his, in his quote he says this is afterwards the day we had longed for had come and gone it had been shown that marching under a flag of freedom even a slave becomes a man and a hero
1: yeah so there's a
0: lot of a, there's a lot of support for what these usct soldiers did on this first day now late on the 15th this is that first day of the battle. Yeah. Hood is gonna pull his army back after Schofield's main attack is gonna is gonna drive those rebels back. Now, although although Hood's army got its nose slapped around and got bloodied a little bit, they do get to live to fight another day because darkness falls. And that's what happens a lot of times. So yep. when, they, when they fall back, they their lines are more compact, right? So when, when, mm-hmm. the, when the 15th started, they were spread out more, they were thin.
1: Yeah. When
0: the day ends, they had fallen back and they were tighter, right? So Hood. Thinks he's got Thomas right where he wants him at this yeah. point. Now he's got Thomas in the open. He's in a defensive position. He's tight. He's got tight lines mm-hmm. and he thinks he's got him. Now, this is where the rebs screw this whole thing up, Mary. Okay. They're going to build their defenses on the crest of this hill yeah. to, when they fall back instead of that military slope, right? The military slope is that right before the top of the hill. And if you're on the top, if you're on the very top, you're on the actual action- on the crest of the hill you're silhouetted to the sky exactly you're a perfect perfect target so they had good ground but they had a bad spot for fortification yep. right now thomas he is as we go into that second day's battle he's going to sit there and do the same exact game plan yep. same guys same move we're going to fake this side we're going to fake to the right we're going to go to the left and that's what he's going to do
1: on the 16th as you said thomas has the same battle plan and he hopes to pin the confederate right while smashing the left right um and the confederates as you said much stronger line and it's anchored on the east on what is called peach orchard hill and the western flank uh ran along a line of hills leading south from compton's hill which will later be called shy's hill after colonel william M. shy commanding the 20th tennessee infantry had been killed there um so this is where frank cheatham is and this is where you said the their defenses are here are not really strong, um, and they've created a salient, and so they're exposed to Union artillery fire here. And the center, which is where A.P. Stewart's corps are, are concentrated at some stone walls. And then S.D. Lee, who for once is involved in a battle, he wasn't really involved at Franklin. He hasn't really been involved in much at all because he was back holding their artillery at Franklin. He's not seen much action this time. The
0: diversion is going to be much more successful. I mean, again, it's the same deals before. They're gonna to try to divert, but you have that same issue where the, the diversion team doesn't want to be a diversion team. Mm-mm. They want to go, right? So yeah. Thomas Wood's fourth corps is, is entered the chat at this point, right? And they missed most of that first day's battle on the fifteenth. He'll move into position on that rebel right center of yeah. Thomas's line. Now, Wood is a Kentuckian and he wants to be a hero at this point. He does. So while that prime attack is going to come on that rebel left, Wood decides to pull a Leroy Jenkins of his own yep. and launch his own attack without orders on the rebel right is what he's going to do. Now, mm-hmm. the Rebs on the right were perched on that high ground at, at, at that place at Overton Heights at Peach Orchard you just talked about. Yep. Wood is going to tell James Stedman of his plan. And Stedman's all excited. They both got fired up, and they both basically turned into those two primary characters in the movie Step Brothers at this point. Yeah. Do we just become best friends? You know, (laughs) they love the idea of attacking and being aggressive, right? So, again, all the action on their side was supposed to be a diversion. So Stedman is going to use those USCT guys again. Yeah. But this time, instead of that first, he's going to use that second because the first got busted up. Mm -hmm. They're going to, again, try to be supported by Charles Grosvenor, who's going to hopefully be with them this time. Grover is going to get picked up. He's going to also pick up that 18th USCT guys that were under Lewis Joy from Morgan's brigade. So now he's got he's supported. Now the day, is, as usual, is going to start with artillery. By about 2:45, these troops are going to advance and they're going to target the really the strength of the rebel position right of, of those redoubts and, and everything you talked about. The advance was through a bunch of trees. It was, it was a tough ground to walk through. They said it was almost impenetrable, but they're going to walk forward through it now. The 2nd U.S. Colored Troops under Char- Colonel Charles Thompson, he places 12th USCT first in line. You have the 100th on one side, you have the 12th next. That's yep. the line she's going to use. Now, these soldiers literally saw this artillery duel going back and forth, and they're like, oh, shit, we're in four now. Many of these soldiers handed over their, their valuables to their officers, mm-hmm. saying, we're not going to make it. Here, make sure this gets a so-and-so. So you can imagine that situation. Finally, the time has come for these soldiers to go in. So they're gonna be sent forward and they're gonna advance on that strong rural position on Overton Heights, and they're gonna immediately fall into heavy fire. So a rebel described that USCT advance. And I keep mentioning this because the soldiers talked a lot about these colored troops, right? According to this rebel, he says, they came in splendid order, banners flying, and then our artillery had its opportunity. Men were falling on all sides and the air seemed full of death-laden missiles. As of hail in a driven hailstorm. They're going to get hit pretty good. Now, the Rebel shot, uh, shot is going to tear into those ranks of the 12th and the 100th. And they were all packed close together as they marched. So it just seemed like every time they fired, one of these guys was going down. Now, when the 12th and 100th started to slow and run out of steam, yep. here comes your 13th USCT under John Hottenstein. I'm going yep. to advance. Hottenstein's troops were green just like you and that Saturday morning I mentioned. (laughs) And they were literally participating in that first battle.
1: Yeah, they had been organized in Murfreesboro in July of 1863, and their primary job had been just for guarding the railway. And that's because at the time it was believed that these African-American troops, you know, they were commanded by white officers, that they wouldn't be good at fighting, and they were also thought they were going to run away. Well, this is the time when the USCT is going to prove themselves here. And these guys go in— and uh, Colonel Hottenstein afterwards, he's going to say, after a protracted struggle, they had to fall back, not for the want of courage or discipline, but because it was impossible to drive the enemy from his works by a direct assault. But the one thing that this, this diversion is going to do is it's going to work this time. Hood is going to send two div- two divisions to reinforce Lee. And it's all yeah, because these it. guys, these this 13th that goes in, just they go in so hard and they manage to get up to the parapet, but then they get driven back. What's interesting about the 13th is they are the ones
0: with no experience. They just yeah, don't know better. Zero. They are, they are green, yeah. but they fight like the Iron Brigade in this battle. Okay, there's a guy named John Beach. He's a private. He's a 200-pound beach ball of a man, Mary. <laughs> he is going to be a vet of the 13th in the attack, and he's going to have a pretty crappy day at this battle. So, yep. I'll tell you how how John Beach's day went with this. He's one of those guys with salt with the 13th. First, he's going to get knocked to the ground by a shell, and he's going to have his injured. He's going to have his hip injured. Okay. He's going to get up. He's going to get shot twice, once in the head, once in the face. It didn't kill him. He survives the battle, and he he says afterwards about his shot to the head. This so jarred my hard skull, I fell senseless to the ground. The thing about about Beach though is he gets up again,
1: yeah.
0: and he actually gets up. He's dizzy and disoriented. He's he's kind of you know he gets shot in the head, right? He's going to get shot again. This time he's going to shot on the side, but he's going to somehow live to tell the whole story. So this is a guy who's wow. like an Iron Man, right? But these guys get within 30 feet of the actual rebel position. Yep. They are going to lose their regimental flag, which is going to be a big deal. But of all the regiments who fought at this battle, they were the ones who – I don't know if you want to call it just too dumb and inexperienced to know any better – but they, they, you know, they did it. They, they really, they caused havoc. I think they uh, felt like uh, they had know. something to prove after,
1: you know, kind of their reputation, what it's like, and and just it's like, okay, yeah, we've never fought and we've just been doing railway duty. But Jesus, let's just go get them, you know. And at this point in the Civil War, you got to remember, like, they
0: know why it's being fought, and and uh, I think they, that really yeah.
1: factors into it. Like these guys are passionate
0: about it, right? I think I think it goes back to the fact they were just so excited to, you know, to finally. To finally get into it, yeah. right? Though this, you know, the, those attack was just a diversion. It ended up being a bloodbath, right? Mm-hmm. For these for these troops. Yeah. I mean, the USCT, you know, the 100th Regiment, the 100th Regiment lost 121 guys. The 12th lost 114. The 13th, you mentioned, had those green troops. They lost the most by far. They lose 221 guys. Forty percent total. Forty percent. Forty percent of the USCT guys got got casualties in this in this battle. And again, we remember, how
1: to do math.
0: Yeah, exactly. But this was a diversion. Yep. This wasn't yep. even the real fight. So this goes to show, you know, uh you know, we've talked a lot about this. The real attack was going on, on the rebel left, but yep. all the action was on the rebel with this. Yeah. On the rebel left, the area of Thomas's main attack, those rebels ended up just completely collapsing. Once that Union cavalry finally gets behind them and, mm-hmm. and surrounds them and sweeps and gets into their savannah, they're, they're mm-hmm. done. They have no chance, right? So once that happens, that rebel line is going to completely collapse, including those troops on that rebel right who have been fighting these USCT guys. Yeah. The USCT guys, when they see them retreating, the rebels retreating, they get back and the battles are chasing after them. They do. They yep. chase them for a mile. They chase these guys, yeah. and- right?
1: The one guy to mention, though, here is John MacArthur. Um, He's fighting here, and he's one of Smith's division commanders. And he's actually one of these ones over at Shies Hill that recognizes that as the sun is going down really quickly, that Hood is in a position to either strengthen the next day, which he'd done the day before, or retreat. So at 3.30 p.m., MacArthur sends word to Smith and Thomas that unless they say otherwise, he is going to attack Shies Hill. And he's like, I'm going to do this in five minutes. So, of course, he's going to do it anyway, right? Because the message is going to take more than five minutes to get to them. So he attacks and his three brigades charge up the hill and this threatens to sweep hood's whole army. And this is what starts causing this, this retreat. So MacArthur is definitely another MVP of this battle. The Confederates who are defending peach orchard Hill, they repulse like four union attacks, but then they can't spare the union. They can't spare the reinforcements. And this is where kind of the diversion is happening. And hood eventually just has to say, vacate the dance
0: floor. We're done. It's, it's true. I mean, it, it exactly now i just want to go back to those usct guys real quick because mm-hmm. because this is this is an important we haven't talked a lot about them no but this is they they, they earned a lot of respect for a lot yeah. of guys on uh, charles thompson the commander of that second usct that full brigade you know he said after the battle of nashville the issue is settled negro soldiers will fight yeah right now this was big this was big news sergeant major dan <laughs> atwood of the 100th usct he writes It was the first time in the history of the Army of the Cumberland that the blood of black and white men flowed freely together for one common cause of a country's freedom. Now, after the battle, a member of the 100th USCT, now he's going to say those Rebs under Hood were the worst whipped army that has ever been in this part of the United States. So now, not only are they getting good at fighting, they're getting a little bravado too, right? So they're kind of taking, they're kind of, you know, growing into that army now. Now, after two days of Nashville, John Bell Hood's Army of Tennessee was completely routed. Right, they Absolutely. were they were done. Yeah, for all practical purposes, they ceased for the most part to be a useful army. They lost ten thousand at Nashville, two thousand killed. You know, four thousand they lost who were captured. But the biggest issue they had was those they had two thousand plus who just walked away. They yes. deserted. They said the hell with this. They said this is this is, whole thing is over. We are going to freaking go. And then Hood's going to have to think about retreating.
1: Yep, And then we see what happens to them, you know, flashing forward to our episode about Bentonville. You know, you see the remnants of Army of Tennessee going there to fight with Joseph E. Johnston. And, you know, you still hear names like Claiborne's division and all that. Like they've kept these names in. But the one thing these guys have to do in um, in 1865, when they fight at Battle of Bentonville, is a lot of them because they just get kind of amalgamated into these other regiments and brigades and whatever. They have to give up their flags. And that is such a tough thing for, for them to do because the flags are a rallying point, right? And they help boost the morale of the men. And if you're giving that up, you feel like you've kind of been, it's like, okay, we don't really exist anymore. We're being dissolved into these other groups who, who we don't relate to, right? You know, because Mm -hmm. you think about it, you know, these regimental flags, the men who rallied around them were, they often knew each other. They were like brothers, they were fathers and sons, they were whatever, they were family cousins and all that. And to see them dissolved, like that's got to be a huge like kick and kick for morale.
0: Well, it's it, when you see your army dissolve and you lose your flag. That's yeah. about it. But but for Hood, you know the hardest thing he's going to have to do at this point is he's going to have to retreat because yeah. he's still he he has that now impossible task of trying to retreat back to Tupelo, Mississippi, in the dead of winter with a completely shattered army and Thomas's army on his heels. Just like the retreat from Gettysburg, the retreat from Nashville is one that's. Is, is an amazing story to study, yeah. Because I think I think it's something that a lot of people don't figure. So Hood, at this point, he just wants to save what's left. I mean, he's his army. He knew the army was gone, but he so he's going to retreat on that same advance, that same path he advanced on, right? Yeah. And what he wants to do is he wants to put as many rivers between him and Thomas as, po- as possible. Yeah. Now don't forget, they crossed the Harpeth, they crossed the Duck River, they crossed the Tennessee River. So they 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 there were natural defenses to get through. He did this moving through snow and mud, in this miserable experience that he had to deal with. Right now, many, a lot of these troops, you know, they, they these, they had to camp with no blankets. In most cases, yeah. they had to sleep in the snow. Think Valley Forge. That's what this yeah, was. Yeah, it's horrible. Many were barefoot and had to force to walk through the snow and had no hats to keep the, you know, to keep the weather off. Right. Some troops who really hated the experience. Um, some of the other of Rebs actually sang a song that was written about the retreat that was uh, to the tune of Yellow Rose of Texas. You want to hear me sing, Mary? <laughs> it probably sounds better than me. All right. It goes like this. Um, my feet are torn and bloody. My heart is full of woe. I'm going back to Georgia to find my Uncle Joe. You could sing of Bob your beer guard. You could sing of Bobby Lee. The gallant hood of Texas played hell in Tennessee. That's the song they sang as they were marching back right so they just had this miserable miserable experience um by the way simon would give me a thumbs up on that song by the way probably just would he say, probably would not okay. give me
1: a some th- th- thumbs up for call me
0: maybe <laughs> exactly stanley horn we mentioned his book the yep. decisive battle in nashville he writes on the retreat the army of tennessee stained the snow and mud with the blood from their bare feet and this is telling you the experience of what that must have been like you're walking your no shoes on in the snow to go get the newspaper and Stumble home from the bar. I'm Canadian, of course. I have okay. All right. Well, just picture that, right? Now, they are going to cross that Harpeth River just north of Franklin, and they're going to engage in some small skirmishes along the way, resulting in those those battles of places like Holly Tree Gap, um, Harlandale Farm, um, in that West Harpeth River, and it's going to lead to that that last stands in Tennessee at that Sugar Sugar Creek in December twenty six. So they're going to be going and, and getting hit as they go, right? Yeah. During the retreat. Guess who comes back, Mary? Nathan bedford Forrest shows up again. Yeah. Where the hell have you, been, man? He's back. <laughs> and he's going to cover that rear guard. Now, what he'll do is he's going to actually have wagons, and he's going to put rebel troops in his wagons, and they're going to be cruising around, and then when they get off to fight, they're all going to get off, they're going to fight, and they're going to get back in the wagons and keep going. <laughs> that's how that's how they're going to do it, right? Now, Hood's retreat from Nashville does not get the attention that that Lee's did from Gettysburg to be honest and really if you the best comparison is probably Lee's escape to Appomattox really yeah. they had no supplies the army was gone it was mm-hmm. completely over and that that's kind of how you know kinda, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it was now Thomas's pursuit you know Meade gets a lot of crap for not chasing down Lee right yeah Thomas's pursuit was kind of lukewarm at best anyway um he was about as aggressive in this retreat as he was overall in life which was not much right
1: it's mainly the cavalry that is going to pursue
0: after hood and it's going to be all rear guard that's where nathan for is going to be instrumental now hood is going to finally make it to tupelo mississippi 200 miles away from nashville he's going to get there just after new year's day in 1865 no word if they stopped at elvis's birthplace (laughs) we don't know there's no report of that right but he marched 200 miles in that snow, fighting rearguard action with a demoralized army to get back just after New Year's in 65. That's pretty good. Now, once they get to Tupelo, who's waiting for them there is Pierre Gustave Toutant Biregard Yep, yeah. he, he's there, right? Or he's gonna, he's going to come over. He wants to see the shape of this Hood's army at this point, and he quickly looks at him and says, "Um, you know, you guys are done."
1: Well, they've lost 75% of their fighting force in just six months.
0: Beauregard is going to make that decision to split up that army of Tennessee. Yep. Those who are too banged up to do anything, he's just going to say, go home. Furlough them. You're screwed. You're done. Go home. Many others, mostly guys under Cheatham's Corps, you know, they're going to end up getting sent to North Carolina. It's what you just said a bit ago. Yep, to to- go meet up with Carter Stevenson, yep. who's found himself as a Corps commander now, Mary. So, in they're going to end up traveling through land. They're to, and here's the thing that, that was interesting about this, Mary, because I was reading this. A lot of Cheatham's guys traveled through Georgia on the rail lines. Yeah. Now, I heard Sherman destroyed all the rail lines. I know. Georgia. So did I. So there must have been some so left. So how, how the hell is that possible? I don't know. Maybe, just maybe, they <laughs> didn't get them all. But I just thought it was funny. But... You know, once that army gets sent up, the Army of Tennessee for the most part is gone, John Bell Hood is going to resign his commands on January 13th, 1865. Those battles of Franklin and battles of Nashville just finished him. I mean, he was teetering anyway. Yeah. These things finished him off. He never took field command again after that. You know, after the war, his, his post-war story is actually kind of sad. It, it is, yeah. Is. Yeah, it is. He'll be a civilian again. He struggled with those injuries mm-hmm. mentally and physically. He sustained in battle. I mean, don't forget— he, he had his arm ripped up at Gettysburg. He lost that leg at Chickamauga. I mean, he he, you know, you said this a million times. He sacrificed his body in the altar of the Confederacy. Yes. He, all the time, he expected
1: right? his troops to do the exact same you know, thing.
0: But but he he was a mental and physical shot at that point. Yeah, he's going to end up moving to New Orleans, and he's going to be the president of an insurance company, which they all go in the insurance company. <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Davis, Davis did. Yeah, what the hell was okay? He's the president, and they're going to use his name to kind of sell it. He's going to be kind of the advertising focus, okay? 1868, he's going to get married to a woman named Anna Henson. And they proceed to guess how many kids marry. 11 kids they have. Oh, okay? my God. Including, including three sets of twins. I thought his body had fallen apart. At least something worked. Apparently you know? not. <laughs> but he ends Ooh. up having all these kids. And it's sad because in 1879 in New Orleans, they get hit with that yellow fever epidemic, right? Yeah. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy his insurance business. August of 79, um, Yellow Fever is going to strike down. It's, it's going to get him. It's going to take his wife. It's going to get his oldest daughter, okay? And leaving the rest of his family, those 10 remaining kids, completely wow. destitute. Now, the children, it's interesting. You know what happens to them? They get financially supported by the Texas Brigade Association. They are wow. financially supported. But here's the thing that's interesting, right? Those 10 kids... Now, John Bellhood didn't own didn't own slaves. Yeah. Okay. He, but he fought for an institution of slavery, and you can argue about that. And God knows there are people on Twitter who will fight you on that. We all know that. Oh, okay? Big time. But his 10 kids, you know what happens to them? They get adopted by seven different families and they get spread throughout the country from Louisiana to New York. Oh wow. And I always thought that I always thought that was irony. That a guy who fought for slavery, who watched families separated. After he died, his kids got separated. I know I know it's just probably sad. whatever, but that just kind of goes to show that life sometimes imitates art. Yeah. And for John Bell Hood, this is a guy who literally gave everything he had for whatever cause he believed in. Yeah. And he was a mental and physical wreck by the end. He ends up dying of disease after he finally has a wife, has a has a family, has a business, and it all gets taken away from him. He survives all that war. Just to have to see everything taken away the way he did. I always thought that was Savage. On yeah, it's
1: a sad world. story. His is one of the sadder stories in the Civil War for sure.
0: As far as as far as the you know the battle goes, um, he no matter what how you want to how you want to spin it, his army got wrecked, but he had to do it. He had no choice. Yeah. There was there was nothing he could do. Retreating was not an option, surrendering was not an option. He had to go. He was invested, his army was invested, he yeah. had to do the best he could. Um, did he have a chance to be Thomas in Nashville? No, he had no chance, but he had to try. Yeah. And I think for the people who say that he, that it was foolish that he went into Nashville. And, and I think that if you're going to fight Nat Franklin, you have to fight Nashville. It's one of the oh, other. He had no it's choice. He had, had no you choice, had, but to, to keep to
1: going. Go. And I think he knew he was going to be fucking with Lincoln and Grant's minds as well by, well, by, by doing that, you know, and just to kind of get in their heads about what he could be doing be it oh is he going to go to ohio geez if he gets to ohio he's probably going to link up with with general lee's troops and that was you know that was something that was definitely in grant and lincoln's head at that point and it's probably too the stress of not knowing where the hell uncle billy is right he's bouncing around in georgia and they don't know where he
0: is you know well you you, you, you take atlanta you're feeling good about the election yeah and next thing you know you've got two you've got two armies you don't know where the hell they're going to go, what, yeah. how it's going to go. You know, when you, when you when you get a caged animal and a cornered animal, how they're going to attack. Um, I think their fears of Hood were very unreasonable, though. He wasn't going to do it. He had no chance. He, I mean, the best he was going to do was go into Tennessee and just try to rip things up and just try to cause issues up there. Nashville was his goal. If he could have got to Nashville, I think he would have stayed in Nashville. The idea of him going into Kentucky and going into Ohio with that broken army after Nashville mm-hmm. is pretty unrealistic. But again, that's how Lincoln and that's how Grant; those guys were thinking at the time. But again, they were they were going up worst case scenario for the most part, and you can't blame them. But I think it's the same um, thing
1: they did with Lee when he went into Pennsylvania, right?
0: Go off worst case scenario. It was. I think John Bell Hood did everything he possibly could with this army. He got every blood out of that stone he possibly could. Mm-hmm. But just like many of these battles, he lacked those one division. He lacked that one more corps. Yep. He just lacked it. And I think that the, the Battle of Franklin really took his steam out of it. And you wonder how life could have been if he could have got to Nashville with a full army, with those six generals, how that battle could have gone. Exactly. You would have had a – you would have had – a Franklin and Nashville combined battle in Nashville, but I think Franklin took a lot of the steam out of it, and I think he knew it, but he had to double down on it, and I think that was that was the cause of yep. it. He just and had to um, keep going, and he he had to get his army back. And I think that's how it was. I think Nashville is a story that has to be told because it was the end of the line for that army. Yep. It was the end of the line of the Confederacy in the West, and it really sealed the deal for the most part. The war was over at that point. It was just counting down. It was just counting down the minutes. But I think John Bell Hood was a guy who was going to give it every last ounce that he could. And he was going to make sure that no matter what happened, he wasn't going to be the reason why it fell. And he was going to fight till he end. That's exactly what he did. So you, you have to respect the effort that he did. You really don't.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely you do. Um, but then on the other side of this, from the Union side, you know, you have the United States colored troops, which really, you know, they are some of the MVPs of this battle in Nashville. And most recently in October twenty. 20- 21 in nashville there was a united states color troop um, statue memorial unveiled in the city which is pretty cool and then i just have a quote from colonel thompson who recall who wrote in his final report that these troops were here for the first time under such fire as veterans dread and yet side by side with veterans of stones river missionary ridge in atlanta they assaulted probably the strongest works on the entire line and though not successful They vied with the old warriors in bravery, tenacity, and deeds of noble daring. Mm -hmm. So these guys definitely made a name for themselves here. And, you know, this is really the first time we've, you know, in all our episodes, we've ever really talked about the United States Colored Troops before. So it's really cool that we're able to do that with this episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, were, there was those stories that they wouldn't fight, that it was a waste of time. Yeah. And I think, you know, those quotes we talked about, um, it, it just goes to show that they, they wanted to fight too. And even though they were just a diversionary force, don't tell them they were a diversionary force. They fought, you know, 40% casualties, mm-hmm. 40%. I mean, that that's yeah. that's remarkable um, to fight for that. So, and a lot of that, that flag wasn't a fan of theirs. I mean, they, they, they were fighting to prove it to themselves. I mean, they, yeah. you want to talk, you, you want to talk about some of those guys, James Stedman himself was no fan of theirs, right? They're, they're, mm-hmm. you know, their commander. And I think at the end of the day, you probably got some respect for those guys as well. So I think Nashville's a fun talk and yeah. it's going to be a shit. It's sad to leave Tennessee family, Mary, we've been in Tennessee for a while. So it's time, yeah. it's time for us to jump on the old Acela and head back to the North and leave Tennessee after these last couple of weeks and it is. Uh, call this to the end of the day.
1: Yep. So coming up um, on December the 29th, we have our book club meeting for Retreat from Gettysburg by Kent Masterson Brown. We are going to be joined by the author, Kent Masterson Brown. So if you have not signed up for a book club and you would like to attend the meeting, it's uh, via Zoom at 6 p.m. December 29th. You don't have to have read the book. You can just come hang out with us and um, we're just going to be asking him some questions. So info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. Um we will be releasing our next episode on Sunday, December the twenty sixth, topic to be determined. Um and then after that, our episode our first episode of twenty twenty two is gonna be episode sixty nine. And uh it is tentatively titled Sex
0: in the Civil War. Wow. Everybody wins there, Mary. We'll have a good time Ooh. with that episode. absolutely. You've got it. You've yeah. got it. So, I'm looking, so, so good things coming down the horizon, coming yeah. down the pike. So uh, looking forward to those. We had a lot of some stuff, and as we enter our third year, actually, if you think about it, of this podcast. Yep,
1: exactly. Sixty-seven
0: episodes in the book. Holy moly! Yep, we are. Crazy. We are on our way. We're on our way. So, all right. So, any final words from you, Finchero, as we head off?
1: Well, thank you for rocking it this episode as you always do. You always bring it, and you are a phenomenal co-host to do this with, um, and everything else, and all that. And thank you to our listeners for all your support for these 67 episodes you guys are awesome any final words from you
0: no no just i think it was a fun episode i think it's great this is always fun doing this and we have a lot of fun stuff coming up down the pike looking forward to the book club with uh, with kent that's going to be a lot of fun hopefully we've got a big group for that as well i think we probably will and we head off as we think about christmas and heading into the new year and all the fun stuff that is going to be coming so all right so let's head off Mary, we will look forward to talking to you soon. The pleasure again, as always, was all yours. And Emily. we look forward to uh, many more episodes as we go forward. So everybody, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic weekend. We look forward to talking to you soon on our many of our fun things coming down the pike. And um, until next time, Mary, peace out. See you guys later. <laughs>